You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. You know, some listeners may question why we tend to focus so many episodes on certain states that are considered blue states, be it California, New Jersey, New York, or in today's case, Illinois. Well, the reason for that is pretty simple. Are you one of those people who, if you're driving along the highway and see an accident, you tend to slow down and take a look? Well, that's sort of how it is when we're talking about certain states. If you want to know what types of policies may be coming to your state due to migration outflows from blue states to red states or the migration from blue state governments to the federal government in Washington, D.C., you need to understand what's happening in those states, be it from a labor law perspective or tax perspective or whatever. So as a result of that, from time to time, whether it's the California Policy Center, the Freedom Foundation, or others who sort of serve as a canary in the coal mine, I like to talk to people who are deep in those deep blue states and find out what's going on. So joining me today is Maylee Smith, Senior Director of Labor Policy and a staff attorney with the Illinois Policy Institute. Now, the Illinois Policy Institute, according to their website, is the strongest voice for taxpayers in the state of Illinois. They stand up for regular Illinoisans who deserve a voice in their government, but have been ignored in favor of special interests for too long. Now, I contacted Maley and the Illinois Policy Institute regarding a specific SEIU-related article that Maley wrote. However, our conversation was much more broad as it relates to what is happening overall in Chicago as well as Illinois. Here's Maley Smith. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Maley Smith, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? Thank you. I'm fine. How are you? Good. So... I have been a follower of the Illinois Policy Center for a very long time, Um, but can you share with the listeners what it is that you folks do? Sure. Well, the Illinois Policy Institute is a nonpartisan research organization, and our goal is to educate and engage Illinoisans on taxpayer-friendly solutions to our state's budget problems and our state's tax problems. So, in that role, we we advocate for fiscal and policy reforms that are focused on creating an effective and trans- a transparent government. So government transparency is a big part of that. Um, we believe that Illinois should be free from special interests. And, you know, the bottom line is that we believe that the role of government is to empower its residents to succeed. And so we are pursuing policies along that line. Yeah, I misspoke. I said Illinois Policy Center near the Illinois Policy Institute. Right, right, exactly. So um, that has got to be an uphill battle in Illinois. You know, I I, I like to think of us at Illinois Policy Institute as a a group of people who like a challenge. (laughs) So it is, it's, (laughs) but the thing is, we love our state. Um, We are a group of people who love Illinois. There are, there are so many things about Illinois that are wonderful and fascinating and historical um, and exciting. And um, I grew up here, many of us at the Institute did. And it, it's heartbreaking to see people leaving Illinois um, and and having that out migration problem. And so it's it's really a cause for us to make sure that people can prosper here in Illinois. Um, that they're that we reduce the tax burden on Illinois residents so that they feel like they can thrive here. Um, we advocate for alternative forms of education so that every child can be enrolled in the school that's best for them. Um, and so, you know, along all of these lines, like it's, it's our, it's our, our goal to make sure that people feel like Illinois is a place where they can prosper. Um, and while it does seem like an uphill battle at times, it's definitely something that's totally worth it. 
So there is so much to talk about with Illinois. And I know um, one of the reasons I reached out to you was to talk about one of the articles that you've done, but you've got a bunch of them out there as well as the Institute as well, or, you know, in terms of just a whole bunch to talk about. Right. Um, You've got a new mayor in Chicago who is from the Chicago Teachers Union, if I recall. That's right. Who seems to be going down a even worse path than the prior mayor, at least some of the stuff I'm saying. He's definitely um, a more, he he displays himself as an even more progressive mayor. um, And he has called for, you know, $800 million in tax revenue um, and a number of new taxes that will inhibit business that will likely drive more people out of the city. So yes, it's it's going to be an interesting four years with Brandon Johnson in office. And like you said, he he was actually on on the payroll of Chicago Teachers Union. Chicago Teachers Union and uh, other teachers unions really paid his way into the mayor's office. And he has yet to distance himself from CTU. He was asked on the campaign trail, you know, how will you be different than CTU? How how will you not just be CTU in office? And he'd never answer that question. Um, And we already see him um, appointing people that he used to work with to key roles in the government. Um, We see him granting new provisions to CTU in um, the form of, of uh, more paternity leave without even going to the bargaining table. So you know, we see that he is already fulfilling um, what we expected, which would be a, a friend of the union, really just Chicago Teachers Union itself being in the mayor's office. Well, so one of the things that you had written about was the basically the um, teachers unions were, the, I don't know if is the mayor giving millions from the teachers unions or getting giving millions to the teachers unions and blocking school choice. Yes. So he received millions of dollars in his campaign. So we dug into uh, the campaign receipts of, of both his campaign and Paul Vallis. Paul Vallis was the challenger and um, almost 91% of Brandon Johnson's funding for his mayoral campaign came from 27 unions um, 50% of it was from teachers unions. Um, this upset teachers within Chicago Teachers Union. Chicago Teachers Union actually gave him nearly $2.3 million for his election. Um, they increased dues to pay for this um, the giving of money to Brandon Johnson's campaign. Um, and there were teachers, like I said, that were upset that have actually filed an unfair labor complaint against the union for using dues for political purposes. They actually have internal documents that say they can't do that. Um, so we really did see Chicago Teachers Union kind of at the forefront of this, followed by other government unions in Illinois paying his way into office to make sure they had a friend there that will bow to whatever their their demands are when it comes to contra- the contract negotiations. So let me ask you kind of a generic question. I've been in Illinois. Actually, I just drove through there a couple times in the last um, couple months, as well as, you know, stayed in Chicago, et cetera. But is it, is it essentially that whatever happens in Chicago, there's nothing the rest of the state can do? Like, is it it's- so populous in Chicago that it just overrides anything? Any common sense that may be outside of Chicago? It feels that way, I know, to many downstaters. Um, I myself am actually uh, downstate. I grew up downstate in the Peoria area. And um, I know that that is the way that many people look at Chicago. And and there is some... um, there, there is some reason for that. I mean, Chicago is so populous, but it's also the collar counties. It's really Chicago metro area. Um, they have so many lawmakers because of their population. Um, but it also goes back to who is funding them. And I, I don't want to just keep hitting on Chicago Teachers Union, um, but they are someone who has been in the media a lot lately for their shenanigans. And they do. They've paid like $17 million dollars. Um, since 2010 into the coffers of politicians in Illinois. They've funded, Chicago Teachers Union has funded half 
of our state um, representatives and, and senators. So what you have is it's not so much that Chicago is driving what happens in Illinois. It's that Chicago political machine, which is headed by the CTU and, and other government unions that are driving what happens in Illinois. So this this kind of brings me to the next point. And you did a recent or a more recent post on the SEIU and how one third of the workers that are represented by the SEIU have rejected union membership. Right. And yeah. so is there is there starting to be some pushback in the state? That's what it implies. Exactly. Actually, um, when you look at overall government, so we're just talking about government unions here, um, and those are the unions that represent state and local government workers. We're going to set aside the private sector, the trades and and those right. unions. When you look at the six major government unions in Illinois, um, at least 8.5% of workers represented by them have stopped paying dues or fees since 2017. We go back to 2017 because that was the last full year before the Janus versus AFSCME decision, which the Supreme Court announced that government employees did not have to be have to pay fees to a union just to keep their jobs, that that's unconstitutional to force them to do so. Um, so we go back to 2017, and in each of the government unions, except SEIU Healthcare, um, so five of the six government unions have lost membership since then. Um, SEIU Healthcare, or just I'll just call them SEIU for now, is, is the only one that has gained members. But interestingly, like you pointed out, we see from their documents that a third, more than a third, really, of the people they represent have chosen not to be members. And we hear from government workers all the time that are seeking to leave their unions because they're not happy with what's going on in their union. Either they don't feel like they are, are representing them well, or like in the case of CTU and other unions, they feel that um, they're just too political. But we definitely see government workers leaving their unions because they're not happy with what's going on. So <clears throat> are you folks involved or do you have um, similar to the California policy center i think they have this opt-out program yes or no it's freedom foundation sorry about that um so i think you... california has one too but yes we do we have a we have a number of websites the the key website is leavemyunion.com and we help people every week um get out of their union we tend to send mailers out too to make sure that people um caregivers in the state who are funded through government um money know that they can opt out of the union that would be like seiu healthcare workers and so we have seen um we are like i said contacted all all the time, either because we've sent a mailer to workers or they find us organically, they're looking to get out of their unions and they contact us and we walk them through that process. We give them all the paperwork that they need to get out of the union. Um, and then we follow up with them to make sure the union actually has stopped their dues. Because since that Janus decision that I referenced, government unions have really tried to throw up roadblocks in the way of people getting out of, of their unions. And so we follow up and make sure that their dues really have stopped and that they are free from that encumbrance that the union has placed on them. Do you do, you do um, legal advocacy as well? Like we National Right to Work Foundation is over on the private sector side primarily. So they are, but they also do a lot with SEIU Healthcare. And so right. we have a number of allies that we um, go to when workers are not allowed to get out of their union, whether it's National Right to Work or Liberty Justice Center. Um, a couple of years ago, SEIU Healthcare um, was just completely ignoring the letters that they were getting. These, Shocking. These, Workers were exactly were 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 going exactly by the book, like sending them um, a letter, hand signed, um, even to the point where some of them were doing a, a return receipt, so like they knew that they were received, and SEIU was just completely ignoring them. And and we went to National Right to Work, and they stepped in, represented um, 
caregivers in the state to make sure that their dues were stopped. And and, and SEIU settled that case very quickly um, because they knew that they were in the wrong. But, you know, the things that they were, were doing were telling them they had to send a copy of their driver's license, which is not required, um, or or telling them they would have to meet in person. I mean, there were all sorts of things that they were just making up. Um, and in the end, just ignored the letters altogether. Um, and, and that was a great win for caregivers in Illinois, um, that, that they were then free. And SDU's been a little bit uh, more, I guess, responsive, but we still come across sometimes when they're just choosing to ignore workers. When you, when you say caregivers, and there's a point why I'm raising this, who are we talking about? Sure. Yeah, that's a great, great question. So there are personal assistants in the state of Illinois and child care providers who are part of like a government program that because they are providing care to eligible participants in this, in this program. So um, for example, personal care um, or personal assistants tend to be caring for the disabled. Um, So a lot of times it could be a mother caring for her child, that child gets government assistance. And so the mother is then um, paid through this program for the care that she is giving. Um, child care providers, a, a similar situation. Um, low-income children that are part of the program are are there the care the child care provider is provided like basically a, a daily rate per eligible child. Um, and it, it varies depending on the county, but they are they are people who are part of a government program or they are taking care of people who are in a government program and getting paid for that assistance. So let me pause you there and then back up just a second because you use the the analogy of a mother. So is the caregiver unionization among those programs you'd have parents with disabled children who are caring for their children being re- receiving state aid and then being unionized. And that is that is exactly what happened um, okay. earlier. It was in uh, before 2014. Um, there was SEIU came in and forced these caregivers, including parents of disabled children, into unionization. Um, the state actually did it. It was Governor Blagojevich at the time through mm-hmm. an executive order. Um, later, lawmakers followed up and signed it and made it law, um, basically forcing these people into unionization and accepting the representation of SEIU, even if they didn't want to have anything to do with them. Now, there was an initial case, Harris, um, and Pam Harris is a mother from Illinois. Harris v. Quinn is the case. And that was before Janice versus AFSCME. And in that case, the court ruled that these home care, those care providers cannot be forced to um, pay dues or fees to the union. So there was an initial win for caregivers um, back in 2014 okay. and Janice versus AFSCME decision in 2018. And um, those decisions together have really paved the way, obviously, for government workers to get out of their unions. But like we see with SEIU healthcare, um, they are still strong and active, and they use all sorts of techniques to trick people into thinking they have to be a part of the union when really they, they don't have to be. Well, this was a wave that hit around the time frame you're talking about, probably in the 2010 to maybe 2015, 16 timeframe where this was happening across multiple states. Right. The SEIU would get the governor or the legislature of a certain state and essentially they would have quote elections. But, you know, if there's 50,000 people who are caregivers eligible, maybe 2000 voted. Exactly. And then then those people are the ones that brought the union upon the old whole 50,000. And I remember a multitude of, of articles being out there about the caregivers wondering why they were having union dues deducted from their state aid. Exactly. And, 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 and that happens across the board with government union workers. Either their workplace becomes unionized or they are hired and don't know it's unionized. And dues are just coming out of their paychecks and they don't know why. Um, right. The Janus case started for that reason. Mark Janus was a government worker here in Illinois. And he he started work and the dues were 
fees were coming out of his paycheck and and he had never signed anything that said, oh, yes, I want to be a part of the union. Please take fees out. Um, and then those fees were being used for political purposes. Um, so we often see government workers unaware that this is happening until, you know, they look at their pay stub and they see that dues are coming out. Yeah, there's um, I don't know if you follow what happens in the other states, but there's a Ninth Circuit uh, decision not too long ago. And I think it was the Freedom Foundation that brought it forth that there was actual forgery right. involved with the union cards, the the dues deductions. And yes. the Ninth Circuit just kind of washed their hands of it. Right. And we've seen that as well. I know that early on um, there were caregivers saying I never signed anything. Um, they say they right. have a card that I signed, but I never signed anything. Um, and we've been able to get dues stopped for people. Um, but you know, unfortunately kind of similar to with, with the ninth circuit, like trying to get back the dues they paid, um, is nearly impossible. Oh, right. You know, they may be able to get out now, but the court, like you said, they don't really step in and say, oh, well, you know, because SEIU forged your signature, here's these hundreds of maybe thousands of dollars you already paid. Um, unfortunately, many of them are left without getting that money back. And and the union gets away with with the money and that that forgery, like you said. Right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you see cases like that where you think justice should be applied and it's not. Right. And, right. you know, it, a lot of times people think this is, quote, anti-union. It's really, you know, if you believe in free choice and people have the right to join, they also have the right not to join. And, you, you know, it goes both ways. Free, freedom does, or at least free choice. It, it right? definitely does. And and that freedom of association goes both ways. Right. Um, we were asked about this a lot at the time that the Janus decision was issued. And I would say, like, we we don't disagree with the right, you know, someone has to associate with whatever group that they want to associate with. Um, but we also feel that someone should not be forced to associate. And so it does go both ways. There is a the constitution is there to protect both sides. Um, the problem is that the unions are the the weighty the the heavy hitters, right, within the state. And they have a captive audience. They get into government workplaces and um, say to workers, you know, oh, well, you have to sign this card or, oh, you have to be a part of the union. Even after Janice, we know that there were teachers that were told, oh, well, money is still going to come out of your paycheck, even if you're not a union member. So you might as well be a union member. So they, they do, we know that they lie. We know that they are, um, they harass. We know that they've harassed caregivers into becoming a part of the union. Um, and so we're here not, you know, to, to be bashing, um, or, you know, union busting, we're here to make sure people know what their options are. And if you don't want to be a part of the union, we're here to make sure you have that information because you're certainly not going to get that from the union. So I need to ask, how long have you been with the Illinois Policy Institute? Uh, I've been there a little over seven years. Okay. So why did you go into this field? You're oh, an attorney, right? So yes. So I got you had- into this. I had spent uh, 11 years doing completely different constitutional issues um, and, and litigating different different issues, some First Amendment issue, rights of conscience issues. Um, and it was at a point, and that was at a, a, a nonprofit that was not in Illinois. And I, I'm living in Illinois. I'm, I'm from Illinois. And it, it was, I, I felt like it was time to do something for my state, um, something for the place where I live. And um, I was familiar with Illinois Policy Institute and the work that they do here. And there was an opening for labor policy. And and I will say that it has been something that has been a part of my life for a long time, even if it hasn't been a part of, of my career for my entire career. Um, I grew up, like I said, in the Peoria area. Um, Caterpillar is mm, here. UAW right. is here. I remember the strikes. I remember... Um, driving by buildings during one of the the most um, contested militant strikes. And, and there were uh, security on the tops of the buildings that looked like snipers. You know, they were the, the caterpillar armed. strike? And, 
It was a caterpillar strike. Yes. So probably mid nineties, right? Yeah. Yeah. There. Yeah. So it was, you know, it's always been a part of my life. My, my dad worked at caterpillar started in the apprentice program, um, went from there. He worked in the foundry, worked his way up into management and spent 40 years at caterpillar. So labor business, um, labor policy, it's been a part of my life for a long time. Well, it's unusual because, um, you know, people don't generally get into this labor arena unless somehow they've got some background in it. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I, was, I was curious. As you're you know, the this. more people study it, the more they will realize how fascinating it is and how involved government unions are in what happens right. in our daily lives. And right. I, I wish more people understood that because I think it would make a lot more of what happens in our state and other states make sense to them when they see how much political pull the government unions have in their states. Well, I, I apologize for digressing, but as we were talking about it, <laughs> it was, I was just, it made me curious. So um, let me ask you a couple of generic questions. Is, is JB Pritzker, is this his last year? Is he term limited out? So I saw somebody... No, he, He's not, and and he was just elected um, for another four years. Um, now the rumor mill is 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 you know we've seen in the national media like oh is he running for president? I don't know. I don't have any answers on that. Um, but no, he's not term limited. He has he was just elected for another another term. Okay, I saw something somewhere that it looked like somebody was going to be running for the next governorship. So I, I was just kind of curious in terms of what the timing was. No, he um, just was elected, reelected in, in November 2022. So he is um, of the famous Hyatt family, right? Or basically Correct. ownership of the Hyatt family. And his yes. sister, I think, was part of the Obama administration. Uh, I don't know all of the ins and outs of his family. I, I do know there's dissension in uh, the ranks of his family because there are some that fall more politically on um, the Republican side, or they fund different um, politicians on the other side from J.B. Pritzker, um, or they opposed some of his mask mandate and and other sort of um, shenanigans during COVID. So um, I think it's a, a politically interesting family. Um, we don't really get into that at Illinois policy at all. Um, our focus has been him and the way that he has um, used his executive powers um, throughout almost right. throughout his entire first term <laughs> to call COVID emergencies um, and and to to watch what he is doing in our state um, right now. The thing that's coming up is he's negotiating with all of the government unions um, to see what happens there, and um, it's proved to be costly for Illinois. Well, I raised that because um, I recall when he was he was running or shortly before he was running as being part of the Hyatt family that was quote anti-union downtown Chicago um, had actually turned the heat lamps on protesters outside the, yes. the building. And then for him to be part of that family and then coming all the way over and basically kowtowing to everything labor wants, it seems like anyway, from outside looking that, in. That did happen. Um, at a, there was a union dispute with one of the hotels in Chicago, and that did happen. He was not a part of that. Um, and his track record, while while there are members of his family um, that may be on a, a different side politically, his track record has always been to be a friend of the unions and okay. to basically do whatever they want. So it was no surprise when he came into office. Um, he was. He was endorsed by the unions. He was has been supported financially um, by the government unions in Illinois. So it's been no surprise that when he gets to the negotiating table that the unions in Illinois pretty much get what they want. And then going back to the Chicago issue, um, you had Rahm Emanuel for a number of years. And then uh, the most recent one, I can't remember her name for off the top of my head. Lori Lightfoot. Uh-huh. Yeah, Lori Lightfoot. Um, she... Again, I'm looking from the outside in, but she was apparently a disaster, right? And then if you're if you're going down that slippery slope, you've just elected somebody who may be more of a disaster. 
Uh, yeah, like we, Rahm Emanuel, Emanuel, he fought a little bit with the unions, didn't let him get away and, with everything. And especially CTU, the Chicago Teachers Union. There was a lot right. of bad blood <laughs> between right. him and the Teachers Union. Um, but that's exactly right. Uh, in terms of Lori Lightfoot and Brandon Johnson, you know, Lori Lightfoot being the the previous, Johnson being the current I, I think that the initial we have we had like we have two elections. So there's like basically like a primary um, and there were nine candidates and then it gets whittled down to the two. And it was really more of a referendum on Lori Lightfoot, I think, initially than who yeah. was the most popular candidate. And um, what what was very interesting throughout this election, though, is how close it was um, once we got into the runoff between Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis. And Paul Vallis is a more moderate. They're both Democrats, but Paul Vallis was a more moderate Democrat who has had the endorsement of the Fraternal Order of Police. And I mean, I, uh, I know okay. you know about the, the crime situation right. in, in Chicago. He also is a big supporter of school choice and making sure that kids can get in the schools that are best for them, which was a big red flag for Chicago Teachers Union. And so it was very interesting that this election really was... An election where the city is going to go on one of two paths, and it's either going to go in a path that's more financially responsible and potentially better for the Chicagoans in terms of taxes and policing and schools um, with Paul Vallis, or um, even more progressive with Brandon Johnson. It was a very close election, um, but Brandon Johnson did pull it out in the end. And like I said earlier, a, a big part of that was because of those um, teacher union contributions. Is there any potential for pulling it back or you just gonna have to wait another four years or whatever the terms are there? And you know, I, it, get, it gets worse before it gets better, maybe? <laughs> that it that could be. I, I think that Johnson has put himself in a very interesting situation where he has made promises of all these things that that the the city is going to do um, and places that they are, are going to pull in more revenue. But he's also said that they're not going to raise property taxes. Um, there's a very a severe pension issue that he has to tackle within the city. Um, obviously, the crime issue. And so I, I think that he may learn very quickly how hard it is to govern. Um, you know, he he only taught in in Chicago public schools for four years, and since then he has been a union organizer. It's a very different world in government than mm -hmm. in the organizing world of the union, um, and it's easy to to you know make these platitudes and and say what you're going to do, but once you get into office, you know you really do have a budget. Um, and if you've promised that you're not raising property taxes, where is that money going to come from? So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how he how he navigates this um, because he's made promises and the money might not be there. Well, and I know you're in Peoria and Chicago is a ways away from you, but I had uh, one of the guests earlier this week actually is down in downtown Chicago. And he was saying that I believe, if I remember the numbers right, there is like 50% or 46% of the offices down there are vacant. It's, it's, and, well, it's quite, our office is in Chicago. So my office is in Chicago. I grew up in, in downstate. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, so it is, it, there, there are a lot of vacant offices. There are a lot of places that um, used to have restaurants and they're not there right. anymore. Yeah, that's um, what you're saying. I will say, though, that it's it, it, it feels a lot better downtown than it did shortly after COVID. It was a ghost town <laughs> at that right. point, and it was very eerie to walk down the street. So um, I I would say that it it, it is it feels better as someone walking to the office. Um, but when you look at the businesses that are pulling out, it's no wonder that there are offices closed. Um, and just in the last couple of years, Boeing has pulled out of the state. Mm. Uh, Caterpillar is pulling its headquarters out of the state. Tyson Foods is pulling employees out of the state. Um, Citadel is, is 
moving its headquarters from Chicago to Miami. So we have major businesses that are leaving, pulling out of Chicago, and that's definitely going to have a drastic effect on on downtown and, like we mentioned earlier, really what happens in the rest of the state. Well, it, so if your mayor is saying well, he's not going to raise income or he's not going to raise property taxes, okay. and that just leaves pretty much income taxes left, right? Well, he has sales um, taxes, all all sorts of other other taxes, uh, like raising the hotel tax, where we already have one of the highest hotel taxes in the nation in Chicago. He has talked about a transaction tax. So taxing the transactions, that, the financial transactions that happen, which would be terrible for the, the Chicago Merc, Merc Exchange, um, that that would actually require lawmakers in Springfield to make that that change. He's talked about uh, like a, a a gas, extra gas tax on a fuel tax for airlines. Um, so that would make air travel more expensive in and out of Chicago. So he has, he has talked about a number of other types of taxes. They don't add up to the amount of revenue he says is going to be pulled in by these taxes, but he has proposed a number of different ways to bring in additional revenue. Um, but, uh, like I said, some of those can't happen at the city level. They would have to happen at the state level. And however, is the state, I guess, do you have a bicameral type of system like House yeah, and so Senate? We do. Um, but it is, the Democrats have a supermajority. In of, both? Uh, in both. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now, there are things, though, that even Governor Pritzker, like the transaction tax, he has indicated he is not in favor of that transaction tax. So, you know, again, going back to Brandon Johnson has put himself in a precarious position with some of these proposals that he can't follow through on. He doesn't have the power to follow through on some of these. Um, and and we will just have to wait and see how, especially this first year goes, Um he has a number of contracts coming up in the next year that he'll be negotiating with. There, there are more than 40 government unions um, in the city of Chicago or 40 contracts in the, in the city. Um, so we'll, we'll see how this goes because it could be disastrous <laughs> for the city. So other than the police unions, um, so he's, you basically have a city budget. I'm talking with my hands. The listeners don't see this, but you have a city budget. That's a finite budget, right? And if you've got 40 different unions in there, some pieces of that pie are going to be more towards one union than another. Are any of the unions other than the police union kind of saying, eh, what are you guys doing? You know, if you're going to give the CTU more money, but not us somewhere, there's, there's going to be a, Pull push somewhere, yeah. right? I I would expect. So first of all, let's just take those two. So CTU and FOP are are probably the two biggest, most vocal of the unions in Chicago. And we already know that Brandon Johnson is aligned with CTU because he worked for them. Um, FOP endorsed Paul Vallis. So there's already some contention between FOP and Brandon Johnson. And a really interesting scenario has come up recently where Brandon Johnson, outside of negotiating, has given Chicago Teachers Union more paternity time. Um, So they didn't negotiate it. He just gave it to them. Well, now we have FOP coming along and doing something like you said, where they're like, hey, we want to have that same provision. We want to have that extended paternity time as well. Um, and, and you know, there are more than 40 other unions as well that could be raising their hands and saying, hey, me too, me too. So we haven't seen that yet, but I think that there will be a very contentious relationship between Brandon Johnson and FOP because there was with Lori Lightfoot. And like we've said, Brandon Johnson is even more to the left mm-hmm. on the issues that that police officers and, and others care about in the city of Chicago. Um, I think SEIU is going to be a major player in this as well. SEIU and the teachers unions were the major funders um, of gov- of of Mayor Johnson's campaign. Um, So there are a number of SEIU units within the city of Chicago. So I think that they will also be making demands on their ally, Brandon Johnson, wanting sweet contract deals. 
That's going to be interesting to watch. Where does, um, I assume the fire department is pretty big in Chicago as well, right? Like the, it, the union. It is. I, but I, to be quite honest, it's not one that we look at a lot because it's not, a. it, it isn't one where the government union leader is out there, you know, making okay. a lot of noise. So it's, it's, you know, you have CTU is like the main political leader of the unions and, and the political machine really, even Chicago Tribune has, has questioned, are they the new Chicago machine? Um, you know, they've gone on strike five times since 20 or walked out five times since 2012. So it's really the two large contentious ones would be CTU and FOP. So speaking of teacher walkouts, um, does that kind of like upset the Chicagoans that who can't send their kids to school? It does. And especially in the midst of COVID. So there were two Mm. different walkouts um, during COVID. Chicago Teachers Union uh, kept kids from going back to school. Kids were not in a classroom within Chicago public schools for 17 months or more, I think more for high schoolers. Um, And parents were upset. And it really, if there was anything good that came out of those years of COVID, it's, I think that more people were alerted to the fact that the teachers unions have so much control over the day-to-day lives of their children. And um, we have seen enrollment dropping within this. So, so just to talk about Chicago Teachers Union, their more radical leadership called right. CORE took over in 2010. So we've looked at what has happened since CORE took over in 2010. And enrollment has plummeted. They've lost 90,000, nearly 90,000 students since then. Um, the uh, proficiency of students has dropped since CTU's more radical leadership took over. Um, And so people are leaving the schools. Um, What they are clamoring for is school choice. Um, And we have a wonderful program here in Illinois called Invest in Kids, which is a tax credit scholarship program. And it is all donor funded. So, So donors can contribute to this scholarship fund which are for then low-income students to go to the schools of their choice, and the donor gets a 75% tax credit. That program is going to sunset at the end of this year if lawmakers don't do something about it. Chicago Teachers Union, um, Illinois Education Association, Illinois Federation of Teachers, the major teacher unions in Illinois have been fighting against it. They want to see this tax credit scholarship program go away. Um, And that is going to be um, just devastating for the, there's been more than 9,000 students who have gotten scholarships to go to schools, low-income students to go to schools, and that will be ripped from them if this program goes away. Um, And so that is something that we're seeing an increase in support for school choice. 62% of people in Chicago support school choice, yet Chicago Teachers Union is fighting um, tooth and nail to make sure that parents don't have any options. Well, it's job security and money for them, right? Yeah. If you don't have the, if you have 90,000 kids leaving the public school system, or at least the Chicago Teachers right. Union's yeah. jurisdiction, mm-hmm. right? right. They're, they don't have 90,000 kids to teach. Exactly. Um, and, and what we have seen with Chicago Teachers Union is also fighting to keep empty schools open. Um, uh, there are a number of schools within sh- Chicago public schools that are less than half full. Um, a number of those are the worst for, in terms of proficiency for students. Um, but there's been a moratorium on school closures. Um, so Chicago public schools cannot close school buildings that are underutilized. Um, and that's something that Brandon Johnson has stood by. He doesn't want to close schools. Um, and so, you know, that's another financial bind um, that he is is promising that we're not going to close schools. And yet it's costly and it's not good for students and people are leaving. So let me come back to that 90,000 number for a second. Has anybody done any analysis in terms of where those students have gone? Like if they left the state, if they gone to charter schools or. So Chicago public school or sorry, Chicago teachers union likes to say that they are um, it's been because of charter schools that kids are 
have left the school system and it's bad for the school system because they're going to charter schools. Um, but that's not the case. Um, Chicago Sun Times did a, a kind of an investigative report on where these kids are. Um, some of them, um, particularly black students, have left the district. Um, they attributed part of it to uh, a decline in the Hispanic birth rate. So they're having fewer kids. Um, but there was a report by the in, investigator general of Chicago Public Schools um, into absenteeism. And what part of what came out from that is that they don't know where some of these kids are. <laughs> they, oh, that's interesting. Kids who have probably been reported as absent, who may have left the district altogether, and they just don't know it. Um, so it's a, it's a very good question. There isn't a concrete answer as to where these students are going, but it's not because of of charter schools, um, it's most likely because people are are leaving the district altogether. Um, and again, like Chicago Teachers Union has has not only do they have a moratorium on closing empty school buildings, there's also been a moratorium on the growth of charter schools. They have in their contract a provision that doesn't allow any more kids into charter schools. Um, you know, so I think, you know, one of the things that parents have learned is that the teachers unions are not in their corner, um, that the teachers unions aren't in there for education or for what's best for students. They're, they're there to preserve their own bottom line, particularly the leadership, their, their power. So kind of related to this, have you, have you seen an out migration as other cities have either in part due to this or, you know, other factors during COVID where a lot of cities lost, you know, people just moved out. Yes. Are you we seeing did. some we, of that? We, we see that in Chicago. We've seen that throughout the state of Illinois. Um, now it, we don't have a direct causation or correlation back to the school system, right. or Chicago public schools. Um, but there has been, there have been surveys and polls done. And one of the top reasons has been um, taxation and the business climate. Right. People are very concerned. We do have very high taxes. Um, we have, I think at, at, at this point, the second highest property taxes in the nation. Um, like yeah, we, you guys are behind New Jersey, I think. Yeah, so so people are very concerned uh, about the financial status of the state, and and that's really um, one of the number one reasons why they're leaving. Yeah, well, I was curious with regard to the schools. If um, you've got if your parents are feeling that their kids are trapped in the Chicago school system governed by the Chicago Teachers Union, if they've just moved out to the burbs. Yeah, and and that does happen, and and the problem, and that this is what is so wonderful about this Invest in Kids pro program is that it is for low income. What you have happen when you have unions like Chicago Teachers Union who are really tanking the school system, those that can afford to move, they move. Um, but those kids are that are still there and trapped in the system don't have any options. And the Invest in Kids Scholarship Program gave them options. It was specifically for low-income students. And um, they are the ones benefiting by this program. And it's giving people that feel trapped within the city of Chicago a chance for their kids to go to better schools. So you said that was sunsetting. When does that actually occur? At the end of the year, December, in, December 31st. Okay, December. Okay. Um, there's one more shot that lawmakers have to preserve it. We have a veto session in the fall for a couple of weeks. Um, they could amend that statute to um, make it permanent or push that sunset out um, to a date in the future. We do know that um, in in election materials and in, in questions that Pritzker has said that he does support the program, um, but lawmakers have to do something about it. There has to be a bill for the governor to sign. And at, during our spring legislative session, that did not happen. Interesting. Well, Maylee, I know that um, we're running up against the clock. We got started a little bit late. So let me ask you one last question. Do you see it getting better or is it getting worse? I see it getting better uh, because 
you know, part of it is because of my colleagues at Illinois Policy Institute and and the people that we work with, other organizations, there is a commitment to the people of Illinois and um, a, a commitment to making it a place where people can prosper. And I think that it's encouraging. We we have seen some encouraging things, you know, that Paul Vallis and the Brandon Johnson election in Chicago was so very close. That's, you know, you could be discouraged by that, but we choose to be encouraged by that. That meant 49% of Chicagoans wanted this more moderate leadership that was going to be um, better on crime, um, better on taxes, better with education. And and in the past, that, you know, wouldn't have happened. We, we see that um, parents are more aware of what's going on within their school systems. We see more people running for office here in Illinois because they want to make a difference. Um, and so there are there are definite glimmers of hope that demonstrate that the people of Illinois are strong and resilient, and we're going to make sure this is a, a better place and a more prosperous place for people to live. So on that note, how do people get hold of you, or at least the Institute? Sure. We are at illinoispolicy.org, and all of the articles that you've referenced today are there, a number of reports, and a number of stories about the people of Illinois. Um, we like to make sure that people have an, an opportunity to tell their own story of what their experience has been here, and those are all on our website as well. Awesome. Well, Maylee Smith, thank you for coming on Labor Relations Radio. It was a pleasure you talking to you. Thank you. So that was Maylee Smith with the Illinois Policy Institute, and they are a great group to follow, even if you're not in Illinois, because it kind of lets you know what's happening in other parts of the woods, so to speak. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List, and if you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. Thanks for listening and have a great week. I don't want to waste my integrity I'm just a man living a one-eye stand I'll tell you what I need Oh, black cream, take me to that place You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.